Hello and welcome to the Fizzy Sherbet podcast, an international platform for women writers and directors. Every week we pack in a ton of audible treats, including a new short play, an interview with the playwright and a further interview with a special guest. Sometimes it's a theatre person, but not always. We're here to provide a platform to inspire and for a great time. Join us for the series. Let's get fizzing. This is episode four of our pilot series. Throughout this series, we're sharing plays by playwrights from South Africa, the US, UK, Denmark, Germany, Hong Kong, and Australia, directed by directors from around the world. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is hosted by three great shakers and movers, British-German director Lily McLeish, German-British writer Tamara von Werthen, and British-Australian actor and writer Josephine Start. This episode is hosted by Tamara von Werthen and Josephine Start. This episode, we will be listening to the play Special Occasions by Amy Eng. Special Occasions is a play exploring mother-daughter relationships, survivor guilt, vicarious living and nostalgia. After the play, we will be talking to writer Amy Eng and special guest Dr. Jacqueline Granick. Special Occasions by Amy Eng. Nineteen fifty-six, a living room in a New York apartment, a table with a covered plate in the middle, Chinese teapot and two teacups. The mother, forty-one, glamorous with an elaborate hat, heels and dress, sits opposite Nina, sixteen, sporting large schoolgirl glasses. Sachertorte was for special occasions, of course. I'm talking about the original Sachertorte in its wood box from the Hotel Sacha, of course. I'm talking about the original Sachertorte from the Hotel Sacha next to the Staatsoper, of course. I'm talking about the original Sachertorte, the musician's torte, because for us, the Staatsoper is a mecca, of course. The mother uncovers the plate to reveal a Sachertorte. She shows Nina the wood box. Don't ever get fobbed off by imitation Sachertortes. You're looking for this seal, this box. This came from Vienna. This very morning. This, this must have cost a fortune. Im wunderschönen Monat Mai. Happy birthday, my darling May baby. Mother, you shouldn't have. But your 16th birthday, darling. In Vienna, you would have been a debutant this year. Maybe even at the Open Ball. I only ever had Sachertorte that once in Vienna. My mother was determined my bat mitzvah should be every bit as elaborate as my brother's, which was radical, you've got to understand, for a girl. How she pinched the groschens, how we cried nothing but bread and soup for months. But somehow she managed to get me a Sachertorte from the hotel. Sacha, I so wanted to get a Sachertorte for your bat mitzvah, but they raised the rent. Don't worry, mother. It's all rent controlled now. To Rabbi Hirsch, 
and his connections at City Hall. This tea tastes different. It is different. It's from Anhui province, best kind. I was so excited to see it this morning in Chinatown. Old Mr. Fu would always serve Anhui chrysanthemum tea when I taught his sons, sipping tea to the staccato of Japanese bombs. Civilization amongst the rubble. You should drink three cups of chrysanthemum tea daily until your addition nourishes the throat. I've spoken to your school principal. He says, as long as you keep up with the work, you have permission to leave school by noon to practice. I got into the cheerleading team. The what? Cheerleaders. The girls who cheer. The football team. They also dance. Why on earth would you want to do that? It's a really big deal. Oh, American football is so vulgar. It's just two afternoons a week. We are talking about the Juilliard editions. We are talking about your future. I'll make up the hours. I promise I'll get up early. I don't understand you, Nina. At your age, I was wild with ambition. I worked 10, 12 hours a day, singing jazz in those smoky nightclubs in the international settlement. Then I come home to that wretched hostel room and pour over the scores of great operas till dawn. Such fire in my belly. I promised my mother I'd make something of my life. Mother jumps up and pulls out a yearbook. Does this some desire for cheerleading have anything to do with this? She turns it to a page where Nina has drawn a heart around one of the photos. Who's this? Who? This no neck muscle man. That's Jake, the football captain. Nina, you're much too young. Don't worry, mother. He hasn't noticed I exist. If I wake up at 5 a.m. every day, I could... I'm sorry, Ninala. Maybe after the auditions. Nineteen sixty-two. Same room. Zachetorte and Chinese tea on the table alongside a letter. The mother, forty-seven, straightens out cushions. Wer reitet so spät durch Nacht und Wind? Es ist der Vater mit seinem Kind. Nina, twenty-two, bursts into the room with a stack of papers. Sorry, Mother, the trains weren't running from the Bronx, so I had to take a bus and... I don't know why you're bothering with these Yiddish fiddlers. My professor says the line between high culture and popular culture is arbitrary. That's ridiculous. But, Mother, even Mahler used Yiddish folk tunes. But he elevated it to great art. Nina notices the Sasha Torta. Oh, wow. What's the occasion? The Mother hands her the letter, beaming. Nina opens it and reads while the mother cuts the cake and serves. Oh. Isn't that wonderful? A full scholarship to Columbia. Mother, I'm not sure I'm smart enough. Nina, of course you are. You can do anything if you put your mind to. No, I can't. I couldn't. You didn't have enough fire in your belly. The Chinese would say you're too cool a nature. Maybe it was that chrysanthemum tea. I'm not sure about doing music history. If you can't make it as a musician, at least be a professor. Professor Mannheimer. Your grandmother would have liked that. Mother, an opportunity has come up. I can apply for a Ford Foundation fellowship to go to Japan for a year. I could record the music there. Japan? You've talked so much about Shanghai. 
This is the closest I can get. Le Pen was the enemy girl. Nazi allies. Do you know what they did to China? Hitler was an Austrian. And you import Sachertochter from Vienna. That's different. This is about culture, tradition, not letting them rock me off my own tradition. I just want to study Japanese music. This is about that soldier, right? Who? Mrs. Cohn saw you with a soldier. He's just a friend. And is he going to Vietnam? Is that why this sudden interest in Asia? No. He's not frontline, he's military intelligence. Where is he going? Okinawa. I'm not having you turn up here with a big belly. Do you know what children do to your dreams? Not all soldiers are like father. Sorry. You'd better write a thank you card to Rabbi Hirsch. His cousin got you into Columbia. The Ford Foundation. I just don't understand you, Nina. I've handed you a second chance to make something of your life. An Ivy League scholarship. If I had the opportunities you had. What's wrong with you? Nina eats her Sachertochter. Nineteen eighty. Same room. Zachertorte and Chinese tea on the table. The mother, sixty-five, looks on while Nina, forty, cuts the torte. What's the occasion? Mother, I've got a project with Jakob Zweig. I'll be filming him rehearsing the world premiere of his new piece at the Met. Oh. Mother! Jakob Zweig! And so? This is a really big deal for me, Mother. A potential game changer. I suppose for someone failed her auditions, dropped out of Columbia, flitting from project to project. If it weren't for people like me, documenting, explaining the music to young people, the average age of classical music audiences, people don't want to just hear museum pieces. Jakob Zweig is single-handedly revitalizing. He's killing classical music. Jakob Zweig studied with Weber, who studied with Mahler. You can't get more. This atonal, 12-tone randomized, this Sprechstimme screeching, it's not music. It's squarely descended from the second Viennese music school. It's a betrayal of Vienna of my Vienna, Staatsoper, Hotel Zaha. Jakob told me what your Vienna was like. The refugees, the impoverishment, the inflation, the anti-Semitism, the Hotel Zaha, bankrupt. You wouldn't think he grew up in the same city. I was a child. Jakob's the same age as you. I had a good mother. She created an intact world, a beautiful world. At home. She lied. No, it's called civilization. My father, unemployed, but dressed impeccably every day. My mother in her hat and her heels and an empty belly. The lightning of Shabbos candles and the singing always. Schubert leader, Schumann leader. The great arias holding on to beauty no matter what. And your Jakob dares trample all that with Your it. parents sent Schubert leader all the way to the gas chambers. Out. They picked me. They should have picked Isaac, but they picked me. Maybe Isaac's children would have made something of themselves. Look at you. Look at me. And mother thought I would make something of my life because I was talented. I had drive. What are you talking about? 
even Jews didn't need visas for Shanghai in 1938. But ocean liner tickets were so expensive, my family could only afford one. And they picked me, not Isaac. You never told me. I can't leave you, Mama, I said. I won't leave you. But she said, to save you, I have to say goodbye. She loved me that much. Then say goodbye to me, mother, to save me. Say goodbye. Nina, 41, and the mother, 66, sit next to each other on the sofa. Nina stares into space. The mother cuts some Zachertorte. I had such a craving for Zachertorte when I was pregnant. Of course, I couldn't afford it then. The mother serves the torte to Nina, who refuses. Poor pets. One sickness is horrible. The mother pours some tea and serves it to Nina. Nina turns away. Did you really expect him to leave his wife for you? He's old enough to be your father. It's better this way, Nina. Just listen to the music. Suicidal, nihilistic. We can't afford nihilism. It was us, us in the ghetto who clung on to hope and beauty, who needed to dream. The mother spoons more cream onto the rejected slice of torta and tries serving it to Nina again. It'll go down easier with cream. Nina refuses the torta. You've got to eat. I couldn't afford to buy good things, nourishing things when I was pregnant. No vitamins, no minerals, nutrients, protein. Maybe that's why you turned out so... Nina dashes the torta onto the floor. The mother gets down on her knees and cleans up. Nina gets down on her knees to help. The mother helps Nina up gently. Hey, take it easy. The mother pushes the tea toward Nina, who turns away. Ever since I heard I would have another sweet little girl to cherish and to guide, to nurture, to instruct. Another May baby. It's much better this way. Growing up, just you and me, what times we had, didn't we, Ninala? I gave up hope when you turned 40. I was so sad thinking my mother would never have a great grandchild, that her line would die, that it would all have been in vain. And then, suddenly, like Sarah, when ich in deine Augen sehe. Nina presses both hands forcefully on her belly. From her expression, it is impossible to tell if this is a protective or a threatening gesture. The reading of this play was directed by Lily McLeish and performed by Ruth Marie Kroger and Jenna Algen with sound design by Julian Starr. We caught up with writer Amy Eng. Amy Eng is a British Hong Kong playwright. Her plays include Under the Umbrella, Belgrade Theatre Coventry, Acceptance, Hampstead Theatre, and Shangri-La, Finborough Theatre. Adaptations include Miss Julie, Chester Story House. Radio plays include Tiger Girls, BBC Radio 4, and Kilburn Passion, BBC Radio 3. She is under commission to the National Theatre, the Royal Shakespeare Company, and Almeida Theatre.
Amy trained as a historian with a research interest in multinational empires, imperial decline, and nationality conflict, and is the author of Nationalism and Political Liberty, Oxford University Press. She is fluent in English, German, and Chinese, and regularly translates contemporary Chinese plays into English. So Amy, welcome. We are so very pleased to have you here. Thank you. Yes, Amy, thank, thank you so much for coming on the programme and also for your wonderful play, Special Occasions. Just to kick things off, this is a bit of an unusual question. When we, when we started the readings at the Hackney Attic, we would hand out fizzy sherbet sweets to the audience. <laughs> and we, we're just asking everyone um, who's coming on here to talk to us to let us know if they have got a sweet that they associate a story with. Um, Mozart kugels, you know, like these. Uh, I these love Mozart kugels. <laughs> um, these chocolate um, balls, I guess, with like a marzipan heart and the pistachios in them as well. And, mm. and they, um, they're wrapped in bright bread. And I hesitate to translate it into English because I once heard someone German say, I brought you Mozart's balls, and I was just <laughs> <laughs> really <laughs> perfect. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, so, Amy, um, can I ask you what was the inspiration behind this particular play, and how did it start? Well, I guess the immediate inspiration was that I, I went to watch a another play, and it was a it was a really it was a a, quite a strange play in that well not strange but it was a it was an unusual play in that it was a it was a full-length monologue play with a concert pianist and it was a woman called Mona who was talking about her the life of her mother who was one of these survivors um Jewish children that came on the kinder transport and she was the only survivor in the entire family and she uh, became a concert pianist and the daughter also became a concert pianist in turn. And it was a really, you know, kind of upbeat story, even though, you know, the entire family, the rest of the family perished in the Holocaust. But it was kind of like about the power of music to overcome even, you know, genocide. And, um, and there was just something for me really uncanny about watching a daughter take on the persona of a mother and play her mother's favorite pieces on the piano. So it's just like a woman and her Steinway, you know, and, you know, narrating like her mother's life. And I just, um, I just really felt very strongly there was another story behind that because I, so, you know, I'm, I'm from Hong Kong, but my academic background is that I did a PhD in Austro-Hungarian history. And so, um, and I did a lot on like Jewish intellectuals and because I think I felt a lot of commonality with them in that then when the holocaust came they were just all when you know the nazis came they were just so so many of them were so shocked because they had really identified as being germans whether germans of like poets and thinkers and and philosophers and you know music was like a really big thing for them and they just felt that the nation that produced beethoven and mozart or whatever couldn't possibly be doing this and mm. So I think I was really disturbed by this play because I thought it's perpetrating the same myth, you know, like mm. why do you think, why would you look to classical music to, you know, save you or like, you know, like transcend like everything else when that's, you've already been doing that for two generations and it hasn't worked. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to interrogate that, I think. And I'm also very interested in mother-daughter relationships and this phenomena of a quite an overweening mother living her unrealized dreams and mm. and trying to redeem her own guilt through her daughter mm -hmm. controlling her. so and that's why this is in a way it's a response piece to that so amazing it's really interesting and um, i i noticed um the use of music in the piece as well can you tell us a little bit more about that because you're using leaders um, the, mm. the songs and what what is the significance for you of those songs and and how they how are they used in the text well so um i use the specifically i start and end with a dichter lieber which is uh the song cycle by by schumann but it was um setting poems by heinrich heiner to music and heinrich heiner is a german poet but he's german jewish so i think it's 
it's just one of those, it, it is exactly kind of the paradigm of what I was saying that, you know, that when German Jews decided to assimilate into German culture, that they just, they really, they felt they could integrate into the culture through music and poetry. And I think it's ironic that post Holocaust, that the mother is still putting such emotional value on this piece, which, which actually though, if you listen to it, and I, I don't know how much we can get into it in the recording. I mean, it, it is, it feels very saccharine and sweet on like first listening to it, but the accompaniment, the music accompaniment is actually very dark. So there's this tension between the, the poetry piece, but, um, but these very mm. uh, dissonant chords, you know, in the accompaniment. So I thought it just set the, um, the, the tone of the whole play just uh, to top and tail it with this particular lead. And then, um, then I introduced this other strand, like uh, of the daughter, Nina, um, working with a composer was really, you know, kind of based on Arnold Schoenberg and and the atonal music as a as a you know a rebellion or or maybe a negation of this very classical romantic tradition. So mm. I felt within I wanted to use the music um, to to bring out the themes of the plays on another level, which is you know that no matter like how beautiful a piece of art, it can't really redeem human suffering. <laughs> what I mean is like the music that comes after the, the Schumann is I think quite nihilistic in some ways. So I was wondering as well, Amy, because um, you have another play, Kilburn Passion, which is a radio play that was also mm-hmm. about a piece of music. I'm just wondering if you, f- if you feel kind of particularly drawn to writing about music. I know your plays are about lots of different things, but there is another one there. Yeah, I've written two plays about, um, well, the, the Kilburn Passion was about St. Matthew's, uh, the Bach, St. Matthew Passion. And then my play at Hampstead and Septon also had that as like one of the main themes running through it. So I'm a musician, so I'm an amateur musician, but like I, I studied the violin and piano for many years and a bit of voice. And I think more so than like writing plays or, or theater, it, it's purely, you know, enjoyment because you know I'm not making a career out of it but I'm also I think also the meaning question comes up for me a lot like what because in theatre you know it's it, I write quite explicitly political plays most of the time so I do feel like there's a purpose to it mm-hmm. but then for music I think many times you know I have come away like feeling mm-hmm. profoundly moved to one level and on the other hand wondering what it all amounts to you know <laughs> is it <laughs> yeah you feel it it could be like an emotional shortcut or a shortcut to your emotions that you can use in your writing by using music because people will feel things in a different way than listening to words yes it's it's another way to access the emotions but i also think even i think of almost all the art forms is very susceptible to manipulation like you know the way that disney does music they actually do it like really really skillfully but it's just that you know they can make like even quite a mediocre story you know like you press the button on the music and the emotions swell and and then like suddenly Mm. you know it becomes quite sublime but only in the moment but it just feels like yeah I, I think it's yeah it's <laughs> yeah. it's so brilliant to um yeah as you say like the, the kind of relationship between music and manipulation particularly in a play about a kind of you know a slightly manipulative relationship as well it's um it, it really works brilliantly um mm-hmm. just in, in the same kind of vein as um as music I feel I'm just wondering about language as well because you you speak so many languages um you speak Chinese and English and German and is there one particular language that you prefer to write for theatre in or do you write for them in in all three and do you feel like there's any sort of um anything that any one language brings to a piece more than another I'm just wondering um I mean that's a really interesting question because I've been thinking more and more about you know bilingual plays and and then of course Lily, you know, who's directing this piece, you know, did direct the piece with like was it seven different languages or something? Lily, yeah. And I was really pleased because I understood four of those when I went to watch the play. <laughs> yeah, but okay, so I think because I grew up in a colony, I don't remember a time when I wasn't speaking both um, English and Chinese. So I think of them as both of them are my first languages. But my relation to because my native dialect is Cantonese. And there isn't a written form of Cantonese. I mean, not in an orthodox way. I mean, you know, 
obviously dramat dramatists in Hong Kong, they've come up with like a, a way to write the dialect, which they actually cripped from the police, you know, because police, the police started it by like recording statements and like Cantonese dialect, but it's, it's not a standardized thing. And so because then Mandarin is like, uh, which is like the written form of Chinese is a second language for me. So when I write in like standard written Chinese, it doesn't have that intimacy that like I, I could have if I were writing mm -hmm. in Cantonese. So Cantonese is my most emotional language. It's the language mm -hmm. that I've chosen to speak to my kids in. And, and at first I wasn't going to because it's like, why should I like speak to them in a dialect that, you know, that mm -hmm. doesn't, you know, it only has like 30 million speakers and not like 1.1 billion or whatever. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but then I thought, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the the rest of China really thinks of it that way. Like, why would you like limit your children by like speaking to them in a dialect? But but then I thought, no, it has like kind of emotional vitamins that like it doesn't Mandarin doesn't have for me. And I would say it's a Cantonese is more intimate for me than English because English is um, very much a language of school and officialdom but also like education so mm. but then I work in English primarily as a playwright so I don't translate from English into Chinese it's always the other way around mm -hmm. and I don't think I would I mean my, my German is quite fluent but I learned it as an adult and you know for to do that PhD and so I don't think it's something that I, w I couldn't imagine writing like a purely German play but I think it would be quite interesting to write a multilingual play because I noticed that I am a different person in different languages mm -hmm. and, you know, it's, it's layers of persona. So I think it would be really interesting dramaturgically, you know, to have like, to see the difference, how, how people um, present themselves differently in different languages. And, and I also think that subtext works so differently in every language and it's to do with societal taboos, you know, it's like what, what subjects are taboo in, in, in a culture. Like, so for example, in, in Hong Kong, like you can ask anything about money. You can ask people like, how much do you earn? And like, you know, how much do your house cost or whatever? And, you know, things that you would never ask in Britain, mm. but then you never ask about sex, you know, it's just mm. not done. And yeah. so, and I, so I feel like then that the way that, you know, euphemisms and, and subterfuge works is completely different in two languages and it, it does affect your personality and the way it expresses itself and the way that relationships are coded so yeah so that's why i've been thinking quite a lot about like multilingualism and plays and like how to make that dramaturgically really interesting mm. yeah <laughs> so you also uh have written an adaptation and i was just curious as well in terms of that fluency thing that kind of feeling really fluent in something where you have a play that already exists in some form uh, what are the differences there when you kind of are already in relationship to a text before you start? Well, it was actually a joy to do, and I was really surprised because I don't like Miss Julie, the original play. Like, I, I mean, I, well, I don't like it. Like, a, it's a kind of simplistic. I find I find the misogyny of the play deeply disturbing. And so when Chester Storyhouse approached me and said, "We want you to do an adaptation of Miss Julie," I was kind of like, "I don't want to." And then they said, "And we want." to adapt it to a Hong Kong setting and I was like no I want to like if I do an adaptation can I just do it like 1888 Sweden and I don't want to you know be always commissioned for doing something East mm. Asian but then but actually I did end up adapting it for like a post-war Hong Kong setting adding in that dimension of race and colonialism and and I've also while being faithful to like every beat of the story I've managed to like change the trajectory of it so I feel like it's a much more feminist piece now so I feel really pleased with the end result because I feel I've really interrogated the misogyny of the piece so that was a really interesting experience in that um you start off with a play that you really feel like deeply disturbed about but then you come up with something that you feel has reclaimed it for yourself so so it was a joy to write in that way Fantastic. Wow, that sounds really amazing. I just, as a last question, I think, I just wanted to ask if there are any women who inspire you at the moment. It could be working in theatre or visual artists, anyone who you feel um, you draw inspiration from. Wow, there's so many. Uh, <laughs> well, like, uh, I think the writers, the uh, Maya Angelou and... Uh, and Toni Morrison, I think I'm really inspired by women that are 
you know, strong women, but that are also feminists. So it's not just about like strong exemplary women. It's about like, you know, women that are trying to do things differently from men, you know, and, and like wear their womanhood proudly into it. And, you know, something about sisterhood but not in a sentimental way so well that's so fantastic um thank you so much amy um and it was so lovely to talk to you okay really really lovely to meet you and um i hope the next time's not on zoom (laughs) director lily mcleish tells us why she chose to direct special occasions To me, Special Occasions is a very striking play in how it examines the complexity of growing up straddling different countries. Amy beautifully weaves the references of different cultures and traditions together to create this very complex, layered story. And every line in the play gives detail and clues to this family's life, their past and their present. I really love Amy's use of music in the play and how she examines the idea of dreams and ambitions and unrealised dreams and also guilt of the mother and the daughter in this very, very complex mother-daughter relationship. In the reading of the play for this episode, we were very interested in creating a soundscape that followed the characters' journeys musically and uh, supported their stories and also their memories. So for me, I find it really clever how Amy combines the different traditions uh, from the different countries. So for instance, in the first scene when they are eating sacha torta from Vienna and drinking chrysanthemum tea from China, whilst discussing the possibility of the daughter being able to attend the American cheerleading practice. And as someone who moved countries when I was quite small, I can really relate to this idea of combining traditions and navigating what it means to be from one place and be living in another. And so I think Amy gives a very truthful portrayal of what it means to be a family straddling different countries and cultures. Even though it is a short play, I think she manages to create a rich image of their life spanning a vast period of time and dipping into the moments of their special occasions ritual of the Zaha Torta. I also love the idea of being able to work with actors from different countries on this play and found that a very fun thing to do. I think Amy is a really interesting writer and I had not worked with her previously so I was very very keen to get to know her and her writing a bit more closely and I think she has a very special voice. Our special guest today is Dr. Jacqueline Granick. Dr. Jacqueline Granick is lecturer in modern Jewish history at Cardiff University. Her book, International Jewish Humanitarianism in the Age of the Great War, will be published by Cambridge University Press early next year. Dr. Granick completed her PhD in international history in Geneva and was then a researcher at Oxford. Her range of expertise covers international politics and human rights in the 20th century to gender and Jewish culture. So Jacqueline, we're going to be using uh, Jacqueline for this interview. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Fantastic. Uh, Jacqueline, first of all, we have a slightly strange question for you. And I'm just going to explain a bit where it's coming from. So we're called Fizzy Sherbet which we really like as a name because it's sort of quite evocative of lemon sherbets and the sort of the sweet yet refreshing fizzy experience. And we're just asking everyone who's coming on to the podcast if there's a sweet that you associate a story with. This is a hard question. Um, (laughs) I heard Amy's answer on, on this question and thought she had a fabulous answer. I have very little attachment to sweets. I have no idea. Um, I basically always prefer chocolates, uh, and but that's not really a story. I have no, no that's idea. Totally that's totally I fine. Think that's very interesting. I think there are some people who only um, like crisps as well and hate anything sweet. So I think it's just really nice to find out a little bit more when we when we start our interviews. Could we just now move to the next question and yeah, and just uh, could you just tell us a little bit more? what you do and what a typical day looks like for you. 
I am a lecturer at Cardiff University in the School of History, Religion, and Archaeology, and I've been there for the past year. So as a lecturer, I teach students and spend a lot of time preparing that teaching, and I also do quite a bit of work to help the department and the school function and run. And I do a lot of my own research. And particularly before this year at Cardiff, that was primarily what I was doing as an academic, was as a historian, um, traveling to archives around the world and looking at piles of old records, boxes and boxes and boxes, and trying to find stories and piece together basically evidence from a really long time ago to to tell new stories about how people have lived in the past and then write it all, which is a huge project. Um, my book is forthcoming with Cambridge University Press early in the calendar year, and it basically represents about 10 years of that kind of work. Mm. Fascinating. That's, that's, that's amazing. So Jacqueline, you just described your work then as finding stories, which I really love as a description. Um, and I know that you also write about gender within your areas of study. I was wondering, do you feel women's stories get the same platform when diaspora experiences are discussed? It depends on um, kind of who, what platform you're thinking about. So there are Jewish stories told in amongst Jews or in academic Jewish studies or um, in kind of more mainstream popular platforms. And I, I think that especially since second wave feminism after World War II, so 60s, 70s, 80s, in general, in society, women's stories have come more and more to the fore, and that's happened in Jewish studies and in the Jewish community to a fairly large extent. So there are all kinds of culture and organizations and histories written about Jewish women now. The thing is that they, like many women's stories outside of the Jewish community, they're not necessarily kind of integrated into mainstream understandings of how Jews think about themselves and how they've changed and developed in history or how any, any community thinks about big historical questions and change over time or who is the default experience to represent. Um, so it still kind of seems in many ways like an add-on that doesn't fundamentally uh, shift the narrative, I would say, overall. Mm. Interesting. Okay, thank you so much. Jacqueline, the play starts in the 1950s in New York and follows the relationship between a mother and daughter who are Viennese Jewish immigrants in America. Can you tell us a bit more about Jewish migration to New York from Austria around this time and prior to this? Yeah, so it wasn't, of course just about migration. The story is not about migration. It's about uh, the refugee experience. And I think it was very interesting that Amy chose New York as the kind of location where this family ended up. And I think that that's partly because New York and North America overall, and also South America, um, were major receiving countries of Jewish migrants, but that was mostly at the end of the 19th century and beginning of the 20th century. And most of the Jews who were doing that migrating were from further east than Vienna, were from um, what was known as the Russian Pale Settlement, today's Poland, Lithuania, Ukraine. Um, and so to have these Viennese refugees join the American Jewish community, which is, has long been understood to be centered in New York City, um, makes sense. But there isn't necessarily so much about the specificities of kind of being Viennese in New York that I think necessarily represents a, a, a large phenomenon. They could have ended up in this story in other places. Refugees who 
survived the Holocaust went to a number of different places. But I think it's very interesting that Amy chose New York because that's so largely understood as the center of Jewish culture after the Holocaust. Once Europe and Europe's Jews go through that process of destruction, basically left standing is New York. And then shortly thereafter is also Israel. But to kind of think about a diaspora, a continuing diaspora identity and what that means to be displaced from one's original homeland and city into a kind of different cosmopolitan Western city, that it makes sense that we, we put that into New York. And the story interacts in interesting ways with New York and that you really see that the mother is still sort of in some ways living in Vienna, but in other ways is very connected to the New York community and thinking about universities in New York and the musical scene in New York and thinking also connected to the Jewish community um, in New York, which pre-existed their arrival and continues to be one of the most vibrant centers of Jewish life in the world. Mm, mm. So by the time, if we, if we think about um, post, post-war refugees going into New York, by that time, how, how long had a, a Jewish community been established in New York? Ah, Jews were amongst the first settlers in New York. Mm. So Jews came with other Europeans hundreds mm. of years previous, but not from Vienna. So Jewish life was very established in New York, and New York being the major port of entry from immigrants from Europe, just kind of that is where Jews continued to build their lives in, uh, in the United States for hundreds of years. But the population of Jews in New York didn't kind of swell until the late 19th century with the mass immigration of um, Jews from Eastern Europe. Mm-hmm. Uh, before that, most Jews had been coming from, um, say, the Netherlands or Germany, so mm-hmm. kind of further west. And it was, it was those Jews who shaped early American Jewish life. Right. Yeah, I see. So I'm just thinking practically for those characters, knowing that there is this very, very established Jewish community there already, that makes sense of their... Yes. Yeah. yeah, And of course, not just Jewish life, but musical and high cultural life, which is clearly very, very Mm. important to this family. That's, that's what's, you know, that's what's going on in in New York City. Uh, That's where you find this kind of high culture in America. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Thanks so much. So I was just wondering, Jacqueline, when you, when you watch fictional or when you read fictional work about the Jewish experience and about that diaspora experience, do you feel that there are any kind of common pitfalls there that sometimes people slip up with? Well, I guess one of the reasons I agreed to do this interview is that I read Amy's play and felt that it didn't make any huge pitfalls when it came to Jewish history. It's really clear to me that Amy knows her stuff. (laughs) It's a fictional story, but it doesn't have any gaping historical inaccuracies. So that is, that is important to me as a kind of um, an academic. I think that there's many, many different ways that there are kind of Jews are misrepresented in popular culture or any kind of artistic work. But I, I think this in particular comes into a category that has to do with the representation of um, Holocaust survivors who are a specific category of Jews and not all Jews. And I think one of the reasons Amy wrote the play in the first place was to kind of try to grapple with that more seriously than she had seen in previous representations. And I think that the discussion that happens through this play about intergenerational trauma and what it means to have been so deracinated and dislocated but also trying to find a way forward is, I think the way she deals with it is really sophisticated in this very short time and really kind of 
brings up, although it doesn't solve a lot of the issues that scholars and survivors themselves, of course, discuss around these kinds of issues. So I didn't feel like it felt it fell into any pitfalls, although it's short. I wish, in some ways, I really wish there, there was some more opportunity to kind of unpack some of these issues that come up. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think, I don't know, actually, if it's, if it's a shorter version of a longer piece, it might be worth asking Amy about that. But, um, but I agree, it kind of, it, it packs a lot in to quite a short amount of time, definitely. So I'm just wondering, do you feel that when you, I, I don't know do you, whether you go to the theatre that much, but pot- potentially even in a TV or film as well, are there any stories that you, as a researcher, would, would love to be told or um, that you feel are, are maybe missing in some way? Well, I do go to the theatre relatively frequently, and I actually saw Leopoldstadt right before everything locked down. And... I I try to kind of stay on top of popular culture, particularly as it relates to my scholarly interests as well. I think that there's a lot of very interesting media coming out of the U.S. in particular that actually reflects kind of the Jewish experience in America in many different ways, which some told portray a very vibrant Jewish community and all of its difficulties and paint a a really a kind of pluralistic picture that don't seem to stereotype Jews at all. But also they're very much in an American context and something that I think is kind of missing is culture that kind of stems more out of European culture and how Jews have continued to build culture in Europe after the Holocaust and dealing with that in kind of a a real kind of open pluralist way, warts and all. And instead, most European Jewish culture as it's kind of things that are kind of formally produced tend to be always kind of in close relationship with either Israel or just sort of one Holocaust story after the next. Mm -hmm. And I really wish that Europeans had more access to Jewish culture that isn't entirely centered around those things. Um, So that's a lot of different stories. And it's just so hard to find. I I think about these things because I want to teach my students and show them, be able to show them clips of movies and TV shows. And if I show them shows that I want to show them, they're always American. And then they have to also understand the American context and they don't have a good kind of European counterpart to a lot of that. Mm. I find that really, really interesting. And also the fact that the mother in the piece is sort of so, she's still living in Europe in her head in so many ways. And I'm also interested in the mother-daughter relationship. And just to talk a little bit more about that, is that something that you find, do you find those characters recognizable and relatable? I do and I don't. The characters remind me of some various people in my life. And in some ways, when I was sort of talking about how Amy didn't seem to fall into pitfalls, but on the other hand, it was kind of very packed in. She kind of, the things that she packed in were kind of many ideas that are kind of out there already about what happens with survivors in New York, um, particularly ones that might have come from Austria or Germany, and kind of this difficulty with thinking through high culture and their own Central European cultures and their relationship to it after Nazism and persecution by those very same cultures. On the other hand, again, most American Jews are 
not Holocaust survivors. They were in America, their descendant, their ancestors were in America prior to the Holocaust, and the majority of Jews in America and also elsewhere, as in the UK too, are descended from Jews who were part of the Russian Pale of Settlement. Um, so in what we would recognize as today's Poland, Lithuania, Belarus, Ukraine, um, and didn't have this very strong connection to Viennese high culture. And even on the, on the eve of the Second World War, many of the Jews living in Vienna had newly arrived there and were just one generation in Vienna. And that was part of a process that happened where the Jewish small villages were destroyed in uh, World War I. And so Jews fled en masse into Vienna from the far eastern reaches of the Habsburg Empire and then, the, and then kind of remained there. Um, so it's not that there's even necessarily that many Jews at all with a kind of very long connection, but this this kind of Jewish community, the kind of Belle Epoque, turn of the century, Viennese Jewish culture is one that has been much discussed and is kind of understood as a very particular moment and an important moment in time for um, that, the Jews who were there. And that's kind of the place that birthed uh, Theodore Herzl and the formal Zionist movement that he led. Um, and that really, um, Jews were kind of integrating into uh, the high, the, the like immense cultural riches of Vienna and contributing to them in unforeseen ways. So it's it's that culture that I think the mother is relating back to, but it was also very ephemeral. And the daughter Nina herself kind of talks about how this other person who also lived in the same Vienna had a very different experience of that Vienna. And it's both of those worlds were true. There, there was this kind of, it was kind of a golden age for Jews in Vienna, but also in the interwar period, most Jews in Vienna were already refugees, not integrated into Viennese high society. Yeah, and maybe I lost yeah. track of what the actual no, no, question no. was, but there is an answer. No, that's really that's really fascinating about how it's yeah, the, the mother is referring back to such a specific and actually such a short period of time, like you say, and um this idea of a and the way that memory also obviously turns things into these, you know, these paragons and uh, and how much how real that is, I suppose, is is kind of up for question in the piece, I think. I think that's definitely definitely true. We, we would love to talk to you for just for hours and hours and hours, Jacqueline, really. It's, it's fascinating stuff. But we um, tragically have to keep these quite short. So I was just wondering what, what we're asking everyone as well is um, if there are any women in the arts or otherwise in, in, in academia as well, alive or otherwise, who you feel particularly inspired by at the moment. I have long felt very inspired by the work of Judith Clerman, who is a musician and conductor and music arranger, I suppose, in New York City. And I think she's one of the people that I have been thinking about, particularly in relation to this play, because I feel like it brought up a lot of things that she kind of herself works on um, and kind of connecting high culture and Jewish culture and actually thinking a lot about the way in which classical music written by Jews in Central Europe can be and should be performed and understood today. So yeah, I think that I always look forward to see kind of where she's headed in these kinds of projects. Mm. Amazing. Thank you so much. That's, um, that's definitely someone that we've not had mentioned so far. So we're, we're getting quite a list together of, um, of amazing women. <laughs> so that's fantastic. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining us. The Fizzy Sherbet podcast is edited by Julian Starr and Lily McLeish with intro music by Jane Dixon. Next week, we'll be listening to the play Jellyfish Blooms by the wonderful Marie Björn.
and talking to Marie and her special guest, Heather Ann Swanson. For more info on Fizzy Sherbet and for tips on how to help support new writing by women and on how to contribute your own play to our podcast series, please visit our gorgeous website, fizzysherbetplays.com.